I'm Sarah Hooper. And I'm Arika Smith. You're listening to Contraindicated, a podcast dedicated to rethinking the systems that perpetuate health injustice. This program has been made possible by the UCSF UC Hastings Consortium on Law, Science, and Health Policy. On this episode of Contraindicated, we speak with Linda Jones and Sarah Garrett about Senate Bill 464, known as the California Dignity in Pregnancy and Childbirth Act. Linda Jones is a birth and postpartum doula and photographer. She is a mother of two, grandmother of four, and great-grandmother of four who lives in Oakland, California. Linda has been a part of the natural birth advocacy and birth justice community in the Bay Area for almost three decades. She is one of the co-founders of Black Women Birthing Justice and is co-author of Battling Over Birth, Black Women and the Maternal Health Care Crisis in California. Sarah Garrett is a sociologist, researcher, and health policy fellow at the UCSF Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies. Sarah is leading a study funded by the California Preterm Birth Initiative at UCSF to understand implementation of the California Dignity in Pregnancy and Childbirth Act. Linda Jones serves on the advisory board for this study. Linda Jones, Sarah Garrett, welcome to Contraindicated. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thanks so much for inviting us to speak with you guys. So I want to start with numbers. I want to start with the data, the, the statistics. So when people are hearing in the news about Black maternal mortality rates being higher and morbidity rates, and you hear the occasional story about a, a superstar, you know, like Beyonce or Serena Williams, you, d- you don't necessarily know how does that really apply broadly to the population. And so tell us, what are the rates of Black birthing people having challenges when giving birth? Yeah, thank you for giving us the space to share information about this, because I think it's really important we have, as citizens, a good sense of what's really happening on the ground. So California, in the aggregate, has experienced great improvements in lowering the maternal mortality rate in the last decade, decade plus. But maternal mortality rates for Black women in particular remain much higher compared to white women and birthing people. And this rate has actually increased in recent years. So to put some specifics to it, Black women in California account for 5% of those pregnant, but 21% of the total pregnancy-related death. And from 2014 to 2016 in California, about 56 Black women died per 100,000 live births, compared to fewer than 10 white women dying per that same number. So, you know, that's nearly six times the rate of white women. And that's an increase up from three times the rate in 2008. So the numbers are bad and they're getting worse. And we know that the majority of these deaths probably are preventable. Uh, we know that nationally, and it looks like in California as well. And these types of disparities are echoed in rates of maternal morbidity as well, which is the unintended outcomes of the process of labor and delivery, which can result in short or long-term consequences to a woman's health. So severe maternal mortality is highest among Black women in California as well. And really importantly, this risk spans the socioeconomic continuum. So even after you control for insurance status, educational level, et cetera, you know, we sometimes we think, 
oh, maybe these are problems driven by poverty, for example, or lack of access to prenatal care or insurance status, uh, insurance coverage. But the rates are high, you know, wherever you look along the education spectrum, for example. Um, You know, a rate that some people mention is that a Black mother or birthing person with a college education is still nearly twice as likely to die of a pregnancy-related cause as her white counterpart with a high school education. And the pregnancy-related mortality ratio for Black women with at least a college degree was five times as high as a white woman with a similar level of education. So this is some of what we see in those high-profile cases, like you mentioned, Serena Williams, but those are definitely not the exception. This is actually what's happening across the state. And I would love to say across the state, across the country, and when we think internationally about countries with comparable levels of wealth and access to care, what do we see? Um, It's hard to make similar comparisons regarding the specific types of disparities we see in the U.S., um, but certainly in terms of our performance on maternal health, uh, in terms of maternal mortality rates, the U.S. ranks at the bottom of high-income countries. Uh, We spend more than, I think, all other high-income countries, um, and our outcomes are worse. Great. Thank you so much, Sarah, for this really kind of stunning sense of the landscape. Every time I hear these data, I am just so frustrated. And Linda, um, you you see this firsthand in your work. And we're wondering if you could help us, if you could take us there and tell us what this actually looks like for the women that you serve. Yes, it's you're right. It's very frustrating. Um, I've been doing birth doula work for over 30 years. And it's gotten worse and not better as the years go on, which is kind of a sad thing to say. But it really does stem to racism. There's no other way to put it. It's, it's Black women are not being listened to around their health and around their body. Um, and because they're not being listened to or cared for properly, they're dying or nearly dying in childbirth. And I hear stories about this all the time. You know, it's not like it's a, a one-off situation or it happens very seldom. It's It happens a lot. Pretty much every birth that a Black person goes to, unless it's really controlled by whom she's with and who she has with her and where she has the baby, is a traumatic birth experience, which to me is a very sad thing. I was talking recently to a young mom, and she's a mother of 10, she was having her 10th child. So she knows what her body is like in pregnancy, I would assume. You know, she's been pregnant a lot. She knows what pregnancy feels like. She knows what's normal and what's not normal for her body. And she said that between her ninth and baby in this pregnancy, she had pain in her side that she said dropped her to her knees. And so she said she knew that this was not a normal thing to have happen. And she wasn't even pregnant yet. And she went to her doctor and said, I'm having this horrible pain. I, you know, it, it brings me to my knees. I, it, you know, I have tears in my eyes. The pain is so bad. And they said, oh, that's, you know, that's probably nothing. It, you know, maybe it's gas. Maybe you should take some Pepto-Bismol or maybe an ibuprofen. And she, she's like, no, this is not that. This is not gas. This is not something that is a normal kind of everyday thing. And she got pregnant and it got worse. And she went back again several times to tell them that she had this horrible pain. 
And they said, you know, it's just, well, as you're pregnant now, and it's just, it's pregnancy things. Just take some ibuprofen, get some rest. And she kept at them until she ended up in the emergency room. And it turns out she had a torqued ovary. Her ovary had been twisted. And so they ended up having to do surgery on her when she was five months pregnant because they didn't listen to her before she even got pregnant. And she was so angry because she said if she had been a white woman and the first time she had gone in and said, I have pain that drops me to my knees, they would have given her an MRI or a CAT scan or they would have done testing. They wouldn't have sent the white woman home with ibuprofen. And so she said, you know, they put my baby's life at risk having to operate on me when the baby was five months in utero. And it put my life in risk because we could have both died. So it was not just a everyday surgery. And so she was very angry about that. And she felt like she just was not listened to like she would have been if she had been white. And that story is repeated over and over and over and over and over again, um, where people try to tell them that, no, for my body, this is not normal. But they just lump every Black person, I guess, into this one stereotypical pot and go ahead and disregard them. And this is why people are dying. It's not because, and we tell people, it's not because of your body. It has nothing to do with your body or the fact that you're Black. It's not your race. It's racism that's causing these issues. It's because the people that are supposedly there to take care of you are not taking care of you the way they should, and they're not listening to you. And so, you know, I spend my life (laughs) trying to educate Black women as to what their rights are when they go into a hospital. Because a lot, of, a lot of the time people feel like they don't have rights. You know, they sign a piece of paper that says, you know, you're allowing us to deliver your baby. And I think the hospital thinks that means now I have control of you. But that's not true. You know, that's not true. So these stories have to stop because these things are preventable. These are not things that are just, you know, they happen. So we have to take it as it is, that this is preventable. And we can see how they're really pushing to prevent COVID, you know, so they're doing everything they can to pressure people to do things around that. But, you know, when it comes to trying to keep people alive during birth or to not have near misses in birth, they don't seem to be able to find an answer for that because they don't seem to want to. Linda, I want to unpack, you know, what you're saying about racism being the cause. I think many people have felt that racism was the reason that they didn't get the care that they should have received or they weren't being listened to. But this isn't just anecdotal. Sarah, can you talk to us a bit about how academia and research has come to understand the connection between racism and Black maternal mortality and morbidity rates? Um, yeah, I'm happy to share information, you know, from within academia. I also want to make the point that, you know, we have a particular kind of data that we collect, and I'll, I'll describe it, but it's it's a complement to, it is not more important than it is, not a replacement for the the lived experience data that is the kind that Linda is representing that she has learned from decades of caring for. I completely agree. And I should say that I know from experience <laughs> and and can and feel personally that I can vouch having had a very traumatic birth experience as a black woman, but I also know that there 
unfortunately, it's part of the problem. A lot of people that aren't going to listen, if it's just the firsthand accounts, they're uh, really very interested in the receipts, as we say. Which, in my estimation, is the root cause of the problem. Well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> With, you know, that's, that's the problem, you know. That's that's yes. really the problem that we can't hear black women tell us over and over and over and over and over again that this is going on and we can't do anything. And even after we research it, we don't do much. But, you know, we have to research it to have a paper that says, oh, yeah, by the way, they're right. It's very akin to the police and George Floyd. You know, I, I equate the two a lot. You know, black people have known for ever that that's how black men are treated by the police. But until white people were sitting home during COVID and saw it on TV, it wasn't a thing. So it's the same, it's the very same thing with this, that we have to research it to death before we can say it's real. And that part is the part that needs to be fixed. Yeah, so so with that caveat, which I think is incredibly important, yes, definitely, different audiences want different kinds of data. So elevating the kind of data that Linda's sharing, I'll also, I want to elevate the, the kind of important community-based work that a lot of scholars are doing to understand the experiences of care. So echoing, just as Linda said, echoing these problems of what Black birthing women and other women of color disproportionately burdened by poor maternal health outcomes are experiencing, you know, they're scholars like Brittany Chambers, Monica McLemore, uh, Linda Frank, Molly Altman, who have done a lot of really great, uh, really important research in the California Bay Area on these experiences, which speak to those problems. But yeah, we also see it in more conventional types of research data, such as surveys, like um, the Listening to Mothers survey, which was fielded in California, found that, you know, Black woman respondents, they were more likely to report explicit discrimination from birthing staff, barriers in communication with healthcare providers, and disregard from dis delivery staff for their birthing wishes during their perinatal and postpartum healthcare interactions compared to white women and birthing people. So, you know, this is well documented across many different types of data. And you know, it speaks to, especially paired with the fact that using sophisticated statistical models, you know, that you cannot explain these differences, looking at economic factors, looking at insurance coverage, looking at education, these cannot be explained away that way. So it really is about that Black women in particular, and Black birthing people experiencing these outcomes at higher rates, independent of the other characteristics of their socioeconomic status. It points to the fact that, as you mentioned, Arca, you know, that both interpersonal and structural racism are key contributors to this. And I think there's growing recognition in the field of public health that this is a root cause, this is maybe the root cause, and that that's what we have to unpack and that's what we have to intervene upon. So in terms of structural racism, you know, the Aspen Institute has a good definition of this. It's a system in which public policies, institutional practices, cultural representations, and other norms work in various often reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequity. Um, and so it can manifest in inequitable housing stock, neighborhood safety, access to nutritious and sufficient food, access to healthcare, all of which substantially affect the health and well-being of individuals from preconception through the perinatal period and, you know, from arguably birth. Brittany Chambers has some really great research on uh, experiences of and, and identifying forces of structural racism in maternal health. So, you know, so there's that kind of harder to see structural racism. And then it's also interpersonal racism and biased treatment. 
which I think as a society, we're less comfortable talking about, but is a big problem in maternal health care. And, you know, and we see it in these very different stories, types of stories that come out uh, from Black birthing women and people compared to white birthing women and people in particular. So, you know, I know we'll have a chance to talk more about that, but that can manifest in disrespectful interactions, experiences of not being listened to, which maybe is a little more visible. And it can also manifest in kind of invisible ways, which is that clinicians sometimes may choose to approach a particular interaction differently in a way that's not even accessible to them consciously, where they just may be acting on deep-seated unconscious biases, um, you know, especially in a busy clinic environment, which may, you know, contribute to these divergent clinical outcomes among Black women compared to other uh, groups, particularly white women. So zeroing in on this interpersonal bias aspect and something that you just said about sort of unconscious bias, we historically have talked about racism as something that occurs explicitly, and it certainly does. And something that you just said about implicit bias is really important to uplift because I think that you know speaks to some strategies that California is undertaking that we'll talk about in a minute. But Sarah, can you unpack for us a little bit about what we know about the phenomenon of implicit bias and just name that a little more directly for people? I'm not a scholar in this space, but accepted wisdom is that everyone has biases. It is part of our human experience. Uh, It's based in the way our brains work, that we categorize things and we develop these patterns of interacting with our social environment that may make us behave differently towards some groups versus others. And as built into the title, you know, these are things about which we may not be at all aware. There are widely used tests, uh, for example, the implicit association test, which a lot of people, I think, have taken just because they're curious about, you know, what their biases look like. Um, And that's very much based in kind of like a, a contrived, unnatural setting. It's like, what do you associate different words with? But I think more and more people are learning about implicit bias and understanding the research that does show that implicit bias appears to be connected to differences in attitudes in some behaviors, in comfort level, and aspects like that. So the California legislature recently has been synthesizing all of this data around morbidity and mortality for Black mothers and birthing people, the science around implicit bias, and has taken a number of approaches to try and tackling this, to try to tackle this problem. and. One of the more recent pieces of legislation uh, you and I have been working on, Sarah, which is SB 464. Could you describe sort of what approach the legislature is taking with this legislation and and how it is attempting to address this larger problem? Sure. Um, So, yeah, in in 2019, Senator Holly Mitchell's office drafted, along with some community-based organizations, drafted this bill, SB 464, which is also called the California Dignity in Pregnancy and Childbirth Act. It went into effect January 2020, and it it actually does four things, um, but we're really only going to, we're going to focus on one of them today. It collects more specific data about maternal mortality and makes some of it public, uh, requires that hospitals provide more information to patients about their right to be free of discrimination. And I would say the the most well-known part of it and the part that's gotten the most press is the component that requires that hospitals and alternative birth centers provide evidence-based implicit bias training for perinatal providers 
uh, and that they do that every two years. This is the piece of the law that's going to touch the most people. You know, facilities have to select and implement a curriculum. Clinicians across the state will have to take it. And the express goal of the law is to try and improve uh, clinical outcomes for Black birthing people in particular. Can you explain who's included when you say perinatal staff practitioners? Yeah, and Sarah Hooper can jump in here also as she's she's worked on the legal and interpretation of the bill. Um, but it's it does not operationalize that as much as we would like. Um, but it speaks to perinatal providers. So these are people who care for individuals when they are pregnant, when they're in labor and delivery, and when they are immediately postpartum. Yeah. So under the definition in the legislation, it applies to hospitals and alternative birthing centers to their staff. But an important thing to know about the way that we structure our healthcare system is that most physicians, for instance, are not staff of hospitals at which they work. The legislation does not require hospitals to force contracted physicians to undergo implicit bias legislation. They could offer it. They could require it as a condition of hospital privileging. But the legislation does not explicitly require hospitals to do that. And so there's some potential gap in the number of providers who interact with patients who would be covered by this law. I am interested in, Linda, your thoughts, again, being on the front lines. How do you think that um, this work will serve um, to correct the issue? I'm torn between giving you my honest answer and the answer that I should probably give you. <laughs> um, I think that that little loophole that Sarah just talked about, Sarah's talked about, is a big one because the people that birthing people interact with the most are their doctor, and if the doctors that are that they're seeing for their prenatal care and their birth are opting not to go through this then how does that change anything? Hopefully the other people around that orbit will will take the training, the nurses, the lactation people, the people who clean the floors, whoever it is, you know, that they're asking to take this um, training. I'm hoping it will make a difference. I don't hold a lot of hope, though, because of the way it's being done. And as many people that we talk to state, if someone is a racist or even if they have a particular bias toward Black people, that's deep-seated, and you're not going to change that by having them take a computer module. That's just not going to happen. It can encourage them to leave that at home, but people are people, you know? Sarah, I think, you know, Linda raises some really important concerns about the legislation that I know you've been hearing from the women and providers that you've been talking to. To the extent you're able to share the data you've, you've been collecting, how are you hearing those concerns with, with other folks that you've been talking to? Yeah, I think, I mean, what Linda shared speaks to some key points of it. So going into the study, we, we knew that birth equity advocates and researchers had questions about how impactful uh, this training could be, as Linda just spoke to, you know, there is compelling research on implicit biases among clinicians being connected to uh, some physician-patient interaction or physician attitudes, but there's really no evidence base that 
intervening with implicit bias training will affect clinical outcomes. So there was a lot of, I think, concern around that. Also, I heard a lot of concern about no funding or enforcement mechanisms for the law from informant interviews that um, a researcher, Annie Dade, did in partnership with the Preterm Birth Initiative. And then that concern about the contract physicians that Sarah and Linda both brought up. And then we also saw these big delays in the imp- uh, in the implementation of implicit bias training due to COVID. Uh, we know a lot of hospitals put off figuring out what they were going to do to respond to the law until this year, rather than in 2020. But that said, you know, requiring this of perinatal clinicians and requiring every hospital within maternity service line to do this type of training represents a historic opportunity. And um, and it is something that important organizations, you know, Black women-led organizations like Black Women for Wellness in LA, you know, that they were pushing for as part of a platform of changes um, that they wanted. So with Linda as a community partner and Sarah Hooper as a co-investigator, we received some funding from UCSF's preterm birth initiative in order to investigate what do the key stakeholders of this policy, both perinatal clinicians who will have to take the training and Black birthing women and people who are supposed to benefit from it, you know, what do they think about this training? How well does it align to their priorities and realities? And what are their recommendations for how it should be implemented to give us the best chance of actually changing these uh, inequitable outcomes? So this year, we've, we're about halfway through this pilot study, and we've been speaking with Black birthing women in the East Bay, San Francisco Bay Area's East Bay, and perinatal clinicians at a couple clinics. Um, and it's preliminary data for now. And so we we can't get into a lot of specifics, but there are some broad themes that we're hearing from many of our respondents and also across respondent types that I, I think is reasonable to share at this point. You know, we are hearing guarded optimism. People wish for this to work. They want things to get better. And that's true on the clinician and patient side. I think there is a real appetite for change, especially after, you know, what a lot of people experienced as a lot of white people experienced as a racial awakening, like an awakening to the extensiveness of racism and and disparities in the U.S. starting last year. So I think there's an appetite for this. But there are a lot of concerns about how could this work. From clinicians, we're hearing a lot of concern that if this is implemented um, via an online self-administered program, that a lot of people are concerned that it's not going to be very impactful just because time is short. They have to do a lot of trainings this way. You think a lot of people consider it a checkbox and that and they rush through it. And similarly, you know, we're hearing a lot about clinicians just not having time to sort of reflect on their biases and their role in potentially perpetuating um, behaviors that could contribute to disparities. Similarly, from our Black women focus group respondents, there's concerns about how effective it can be similar to what Linda brought up, that how can you go about changing deep biases that people may have? And there's a lot of interest, I would say, from both types of respondents about both learning from those most affected. So there's a lot of interest in hearing personal stories about how real people that receive care at their hospital are experiencing biases and inequitable care and not being listened to. A number of clinicians it seems like maybe they're not that exposed to these sort of full stories. And so they feel they could um, learn from and grow from that kind of exposure. And similarly, a lot of our focus group respondents are saying they 
need to understand our humanity. There are these amazing responses we get. Linda has asked this question in all of our focus groups about in a perfect world, like, how do you want your doctor to treat you? And the responses we've been getting is like, like a person, like a human being with a brain, you know, like anyone else who comes in here. Um, and so I think there's a real push to elevating, you know, the humanity through exposure to more stories and exposure to creating some of those relationships, if not in person, at least through these compelling stories. And from both groups, we're also hearing concerns about enforcement. Like, how are you going to make sure that the people who most need this training are going to take it and are going to take this seriously? And to whom are the hospitals and these clinicians accountable? So um, those are themes that we have heard uh, from Black birthing women and also from clinicians. One thing that I think is valuable to point out, though, is despite all these concerns and, you know, uncertainty about whether it will really change things, um, every one of the you know dozen black birthing people we've spoken with uh, in our focus groups has said that yes, they want their providers to take this training. So that seems like important insight. Okay, I'm hearing um, that SB 464 is really a starting point for the work that needs to be done to change how clinicians are caring for black birthing people and improve the outcomes here in California, if it's a starting point, what's next? Where should we be going from here uh, on this huge you know, endeavor? I can jump in to talk a little bit about companion legislation to SB 464 addressing clinician training. Um, and then I'll kick it over to Sarah to, to say a little bit more about the Momnibus Act. But I think there is certainly recognition in the California legislature that SB 464 and implicit bias training alone is not enough to really address these issues. And as we discussed before, SB 464 has some holes with respect to who is actually required to undergo the training. So there's there's separate legislation that is going to require implicit bias information to be integrated in continuing education requirements for clinicians. And that is going to be around implicit bias. There has already been a requirement in continuing education healthcare providers to include elements of cultural competency, but the legislation pushes it a little bit further and requires that education include implicit bias information more specifically. There are a lot of open questions about how the boards are actually going to implement that as part of training and, and meeting of continuing education requirements, but it potentially could help alleviate some of these questions around how many clinicians are actually going to be thinking about implicit bias legislation. Sarah, do you want to speak a little bit more uh, to the Momnibus Bill and the sort of structural issues that that's addressing? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, just as we talked about that, you know, it's both interpersonal racism, but also structural racism as a huge contributor to disparities in maternal health. You know, this, the individual level focus of implicit bias training is a piece of it, but new legislation like California Momnibus SB 65 um, is a really key complement because it actually changes some structures and resources. So signed a little earlier this year, SB 65 includes Medi-Cal coverage for doulas, extends Medi-Cal eligibility for postpartum people, which provides easier access to CalWORKs for pregnant people, 
and it establishes a guaranteed income pilot program that prioritizes pregnant Californians with low income. So those are important material changes that uh, that also need to complement any individual level interventions like implicit bias training. Linda, it would also be great to hear from you on this, given your perspective on the ground and your very direct support of Black birthing people in your work. What do you think are the next steps of the things that are needed? Yeah, I think what I feel truly is that there has to be an accountability factor built into some of these laws that are coming down the pike. Um, I think that's the missing piece. We can have people take, however they take it, they can take it, but they have to show somehow that it's had an effect on them by taking this training. I mean, any other training that people take, you know, there's usually some follow-up around it. And I think if, if clinicians were, if they had to report back to somebody that, you know, this is what they've started to do differently, you know, I now take longer to listen to my Black clients. I knock on the door before I come in. I introduce myself to them before I start talking to them. Um, these are little things, but they mean a lot to people who are disrespected when they go into these spaces. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been in with a person giving birth and people just walk in and do things to them without even telling them who they are. <laughs> you know, it's, it's to me, that's molestation in any other place. Um, so I, I think if we could just change some of the smaller things that happen, they're small and what they are, but they're big in their consequence, you know, closing the door behind you, you know, knocking on the door before you come in, introducing yourself, asking permission to touch someone. You know, these are all things that are very doable in my estimation. And they're also trackable to say, yeah, this is what I've done. Um, this is what I'm trying to do to improve how I take care of black people. Um, do you listen to them? Are you actually doing for them what you would do if it was a white patient you were listening to. These things have to have some accountability or else what's the point? I mean, how do we know that there's any change? Are we going to ask the Black people if they're being treated differently? Why should we put it on them to be the harbiter of whether this is working or not? And for Black people, I think it's we need to ask our physicians, our clinicians, all the people that we see when we go in to have all these things done to us when we're having a baby. I understand there's some implicit bias laws that have come through. Did you take the training? You know, put it, ask them, you know, before you touch me, I want to know whether or not you've had implicit bias training or not. I think that's, that's a very practical way to go about this. Educate people that there is such a thing and tell them to ask their physicians if they've taken the training. Ask them if they ask the nurses that they're dealing with. You know, hi, nice to meet you. Have you taken implicit bias training? <laughs> you know, and I think if enough people do that, they're going to have to come up with a way to say yes to that question. So maybe that's the answer. Let's put it back on Black people to fix, <laughs> you know, as everything else. Um, we have to fix our own stuff. And I just, I just feel like there has to be accountability on some level, either from the patients themselves or from the institutions that these people work in. Because if not, how do we know it's working even after they've done it? That's not built into it. Linda, part of the legislation that we haven't had a chance to talk about is the obligation of hospitals to disclose to patients that they have the right to receive care free of discrimination. 
And then mm-hmm. I, I have concerns about how hospitals are going to do that. But I just wonder if you could share, you know, how are women who have been traumatized by their interactions with providers, is this helpful to them? And what would you, how would you recommend patients advocate for themselves? And I think to your earlier point, is that a realistic expectation given the harms that people suffer in in the healthcare system? Yeah, the problem with asking Black women and birthing people to be their own police (laughs) for their care is that once we start to speak up as Black women, we're labeled again. The bias comes back to bite us again because now we become a non-compliant patient, whatever that is. You know, that's just someone who would like to have a question answered, you know, or someone who says, no, I don't want that. You know, I, I choose not to have that. And they have that right to do that in a hospital. You know, <clears throat> it's their responsibility. But you can say no to anything. And people don't, I think, know that. And those that do and act on it are then punished. You know, they are treated badly. You know, they, nobody comes to see them as much. They're just, they're labeled that they're a bad patient because they're not doing what the doctor wants them to do. And so to ask Black women while they're in labor <laughs> to ask somebody to be nice to them, I, I don't think that's the time. I just don't think that's the time. This has to come from the institution. They have to want to make people feel good about coming there. And I don't I understand why they don't, because you know, if they're really just looking at the bottom line, if the word gets out that, you know, don't go to this hospital because you're gonna be treated badly, that affects their pocketbook, you know, especially it's, 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 it affects their bottom line. So I would think that they want people to know that their doctors were trained in implicit bias and they're really trying hard to respect them and honor them and treat them as a human like they all want to be treated. But that doesn't seem to be happening at all. Linda, you've you've been an advocate uh, for women and and understanding sort of the unfairness of that. Are there any resources that you can suggest for people if they are trying to figure out how to protect themselves, if they are just learning that they are pregnant and have concerns about what their experience is going to be like? Are there any resources that you could point to and, and we can share them uh, in the notes to this episode with listeners? Yeah, there there are several. I really believe it's important for Black women to educate themselves when they get pregnant, to know what their rights are, to know what they can and cannot do, what they can and cannot refuse. A good source for this is uh, the National Association to Advance Black Birth has put out a Black Birthing Bill of Rights, which is very easy to find online. Um, And it's very simple. It's not complicated. And it just lays out what your rights are when you go in to have a baby. Also, Dr. Zaya Malawa over in San Francisco, she works with Expecting Justice, and she has a wealth of information for women of color to help them if they're at risk for poor maternal health outcomes. And then the organization that I co-founded, Black Women Birthing Justice, has a book called Battling Over Birth. And we talked to 100 Black women in California and got their stories and we extrapolated from them what the largest points were and put in recommendations for people, for the family of birthing people, for the birthing people themselves, for the doctors of birthing people, for the you know, staff, for the heads of the hospitals, Things, all things that they can do to make a birthing experience better. 
And there's also an organization called the Elephant Circle, which is a legal organization that also talks about your rights when you go in to have a baby. So there's, there's quite a few things out there that people can, can do to educate themselves. And I always like to say, and hire a doula <laughs> or find a free doula from somewhere because it's really important. It makes a, a big difference. I'm really happy that part of the Monobus Act got signed that will provide doulas for Medi-Cal patients free of charge to them because I feel like everybody should have a doula when they go into the hospital. It, it ups your chances of coming out of there with less trauma and maybe your life. <laughs> so it's important to have that. And if you don't know what a doula is, it's someone who is an emotional support person for you. Uh, Look it up. It's D-O-U-L-A. I want to thank you both, Linda, Sarah, for joining us on Contraindicated. This has been such an informative episode on such an important topic. And I hope that people will listen and people will act. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. For resources and info related to this episode, and to listen to other episodes, please visit uchastings.edu forward slash health and justice.